this week's episode of Cocktail Hour with Stuart Parker uh, was not recorded as I was busy recording a Los Altos Institute panel on the conflict in Ukraine. I'm putting a copy of that panel here. It originally appeared on Los Altos Institute's podcast channel, but can also be heard here starting now. Los Altos Institute assembled a panel of four of our board members, each of whom has some specific knowledge uh, and interest in the current Russo-Ukraine conflict. We have not done this in order to stake out an official position on the part of the Institute, nor are we people who are primarily analyzing events in the present. We are just as uninformed as everyone else about the actual logistics of the situation and um, the disputed information uh, and obscured information as all sides generate war propaganda. So this is not your typical panel of four guys arguing about what happened in Ukraine today and what it all means. Instead, it's a panel that tries to take one step back. Each of us has some knowledge and opinion that is informed um, that pertains to the conflict and is not common, is not uh, universal. And so we felt we could make a small contribution by holding this panel and simply weighing in with some of the specific knowledge and perspective that other folks who share our views might not have, uh, so that you can develop your opinion, inform your critical thinking better. So we're doing something small, it's a little unambitious, and uh, we felt we should say something at least, because I think it's important that uh, everyone express their sympathies with the devastation uh, being experienced by civilian populations uh, in all parts of the Ukraine um, and uh, of the many families in uh, Russia impacted by this, by the loss of their sons or uh, uh, relatives uh, across the border in, um, in Ukraine. So... We concur on our deepest sympathies with uh, the victims of this war, and uh, we hope that uh, some observers will find our observations useful. I'm Stuart Parker, I'm the president of LAI, and I'll be moderating as well as participating in the panel. Joining me on the line are uh, three uh, comrades. Uh, we're four members of the board of Los Altos Institute. Uh, and this is going to be our institute's very small, unambitious, specific contribution to the big public square conversation about the events taking place in Ukraine right now. We've, each of us has some perspectives, some context that we hope will help other socialist, materialist-minded people uh, come to their own decisions about how to analyze and uh, respond to the conflict that's taking place. So uh, we have me, Stuart Parker, in Vancouver, Jonathan Sheps, also in Vancouver, Tom Iwasiuk in White Rock, and R.T. Hatfield near Atlanta, Georgia. So um, I'll say a few words about what I'm bringing to this. I basically have two areas of knowledge that I think are relevant that might be able to help people contextualize their views. First, I have done a lot of teaching and some writing on the immigration boom, and particularly the immigration boom of the late 19th century and early 20th, and how it affected Canadian demography. 
Canada is unique in the world of all of the white settler states in actively soliciting Russian and Ukrainian immigrants as a preferred immigrant group. And this has substantially shaped the demography, particularly of Canada's prairie provinces. My other area of interest is in um, Russian state theory, because uh, the history and evolution of Russian understandings of the state, of authority, and of democracy are becoming increasingly relevant in Canada as Canadians take a specifically Russian cultural turn in how we think our own about our own democracy. So spend a lot of time looking at the antecedent states to Russia, the Khanate of the Golden Horde, the, um, uh, the uh, Kingdom of uh, Kiev, and uh, the um, uh, Byzantine Empire, and the various ways that they fed into the formation of what we now call Russia. Jonathan, introduce yourself, talk about what your um, areas of knowledge and interest are. Okay, well, like Tom, I suspect I am a grandchild of this immigration boom you mentioned. Um, my family is basically all from all Jews from the Russian Empire, from you, what are now Ukraine and Belarus. Um, apart from that, um, I have a private interest in military history. Uh, which has been a, a hobby of mine throughout my life, um, and studied Russian history briefly in college. Um, as, as, and I've sort of just been keeping, so trying to correlate the culture and cultural tropes that I learned of as constants in or features of Russian history and Ukrainian history um, with the things I'm seeing now. So, uh, RT, you've had a much more direct on the ground experience of uh, this situation uh, than the other people on the call. Um, and some of that experience is ongoing. Take us into what you're bringing to this conversation. Well, uh, I was a missionary for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Russia about 10 years ago. So I lived in the country for about two years. I speak Russian fluently. I spent those two years day in, day out, talking to Russian people about their daily Russian life problems or whatever. So um, you could say I kind of know it, um, what the culture there is like. Uh, I'm not in any way related to it. I don't have any Slavic ancestors that I know of at all. Um, we're all Anglos where I'm from. Um, but it's, it's, I mean, it's been an ongoing interest for me for the last 10 years. I took a few courses on it in college on Russian history, Russian literature, um, but I am not what Russians would call an Obrazovnichelovyek. I'm not a, like an educated person. I've just got, I'm a dabbler. I take little bits that I learned here and there. I never made it more than a few chapters into Karamzin's uh, history of the Russian state. So there's gaps in my knowledge. Um, what Stuart, I think, is handing at is that I have friends who are in Russia and Ukraine or um, in uh, the Donetsk People's Republic right now. Um, and I honestly haven't had tons of direct contact with them in the last few weeks because I'm kind of just trying to stay out of the way and I don't even know what I would offer to them. Um, trying to reach out, especially getting harder to do so, given that um, Facebook is shutting down in Russia and just all the links of communication between here and there are breaking. Um, but yeah, that's, that's about where my background ties into this conversation. Uh, Tom, go ahead. Uh, I was born of um, the first children of the immigration into Canada. My great-grandparents immigrated to Canada from Western Ukraine in the 1890s. And uh, my grandmother was born in 1905 on the quarter section in, uh, in near Lac La Biche, Alberta. 
And uh, uh, so my cultural heritage is Ukrainian Orthodox. Um, we celebrated the uh, Orthodox Christmas. We uh, celebrated Ukrainian um, uh, uh, sort of holidays as well as uh, all the weddings I went to as a child where you have Ukrainian um, and almost none of it was Russian. Um, and, but because I'm a child of the Cold War, um, everything I learned about that area was Moscow centric. Uh, I didn't know about the other federations. I didn't know about the other, um, other parts of, of Russia until not, you know, until the last decade or so. I didn't understand, um, um, you know, the complexity that is, that makes up Russia. But I do know uh, a lot more about um, um, the, the changes that have got undergone, that have been under underway in Ukraine over the last 30 years, and especially in the last 20 years. So um, uh, though that's kind of where I, where I am. I'm not a, I do not study it. I do not, did not go to university for any of the opinions that I might have, but uh, um, it is in the context of a Canadian, uh, of the diaspora of what is now uh, 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 a pretty vibrant uh, Ukrainian heritage. Okay, so um, this is great. I feel queued up for the next question that I'm interested in each of your answers to. So uh, one of the most influential thinkers in American foreign policy and American conservatism is Samuel Huntington. Uh, in 1993, he published Clash of Civilizations, uh, which strongly influenced the foreign policy of the Bush administration and continues to leave a major footprint um, for conservatives. Uh, much of Clash of Civilizations is laying out a big theory of how the world works. And Huntingdon, to demonstrate his theory, used as case studies two countries. Turkey and Ukraine. Yeah, and he predicted in Clash of Civilizations, uh, he made some predictions about how things were going to go in Turkey and Ukraine over the next 30 years based on his model. And it's now year 29 since Huntington's model came out. Huntington argued that um, he called uh, Turkey an example of what was a torn country, according to his schema where the ideology of the elite had no real reflection in popular opinion. And he saw that the secularist elite of Turkey would inevitably be overthrown by a populist Islamist movement. His prediction for Ukraine was that Ukraine was going to be um, within one of the key sites within the Christian world of global conflict. Huntington argued that a disproportionate number of the sites of global conflict would be at the edges of the Muslim world, but he, are, but he felt that Ukraine, more than anywhere else in the Christian world, would be a major site of conflict because he believed that Orthodox Ukrainians and Catholic Ukrainians would move away from the 20th century ecumenical movements that they had been involved in before and during the Cold War, and would increasingly be at odds with that eventually coming to involving force. So um, uh, Huntington suggested that there was a fault line down the middle of Ukraine, it would become increasingly religiously partitioned, and that those partitioned areas would produce a major conflict uh, that would pull other regional state actors into it, particularly Russia, which is understood to be the sponsor of orthodox religiosity throughout the world. Now, each of you um, has got an angle on that. RT was on the ground dealing with the religious views of orthodox and other Russians uh, 10 years ago. Uh, Jonathan, obviously, you're bring, you'll bring a religious perspective thinking about the um, both coercive and uh, other forms of expulsion of your people from Ukraine. 
Tom, you already talked about your religious experience, so I feel everybody's got something to offer here. Uh, who would like the baton? Well, uh, I don't see this um, class as a classic religious conflict right now. Um, um, the Orthodox Russian Orthodox Church did have to have a say in this. Uh, so it is in the works, though it is not being presented as such. Um, uh, there has been a um, uh, the division between the Russian and the Orthodox and the Orthodox and the Ukrainian Orthodox Church is it, that's about power um, and the and that goes back a little bit further because the Russian Orthodox Church uh, really had uh, um, really needed to. Uh, uh, make it big enough to represent the people, but small enough to control. And that just didn't, then the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, the Ukrainians did not fit into the power scheme. So um, uh, uh, I don't think, I don't see this as a religious church or as a religious fight. I, I do see it though as turning that way um, in the next few weeks, possibly months, um, you can already hear um, uh, some of those uh, messages coming through um, in in uh, in some of the propaganda, especially from the Ukrainian side. I don't see it coming from the Russian side yet. Okay, RT. Yeah, and I, I would I would say yes. I think it's not a primarily religious conflict at the, at this point, and. I would say that it's not a Catholic versus Orthodox conflict at all. Like I had the messaging that I have seen coming out of the Ukrainian side is not pro-Catholic in any way. Um, if anything, it's more likely to be pro-Norse pagan um, than that, or again, pro-Ukrainian Orthodox, but um, yeah, that's it. Uh, Jonathan, go ahead. Okay, I think my own theory is that the reason this isn't turning into the religious conflict that Russia hoped it would be is because the Ukrainians have done an end, round, end run around Huntington by going back full circle to where they began a thousand years ago. Um, and this is symbolized and materialized by electing a Jew as president. I think the Russians and the Ukrainians and the Orthodox and the Catholics in Ukraine solved all of their sectional problems by saying, we'll put a Jew in charge. We believe in Ukraine. We don't believe in religion when it matter when it comes to this conflict. Now this, my general political theory of the 21st century is that it is the 11th century being played over for a second time. And this is the second example of it that I've been able to see, maybe the third. Um, because the, what I was taught in Russian history class long ago in college, like in 86, was that Russian history begins with this one document, Ruskaya Pravda. And it records the early, the original history of Kiev and the foundation of the, the princely state of Kiev. And it starts with this phrase where the Bayars, the bourgeois merchants of Kiev say to Rurik, the leader of the local Vikings, uh, the Varangian groups, the He says, the, the Bayars say to Rurik, the land is rich, but there is no order in it. So come now and rule over us. But like every form of Pravda in Russia, there is a fundamental untruth to it because it leaves out more than it says. What it leaves out is everything that happened before it was written. It acts as if you had an independent Kiev, which somehow needed control over the hinterland. But that's completely not what was going on, or well, it was sort of what was going on. Kiev at that time and around the middle of the 10th century was a vassal state of the cognate of Khazaria, the large Jewish state which controlled the steppe from Kiev to Kazakhstan. The problem with Khazaria was that it was not powerful enough to resist encroachments of pagan Turkish tribes from the east and dealt with at least one of them, the Pechenegg intrusion, by simply saying, look, march through our lands, rape Kiev, we don't care, they're Christians anyways, just leave us alone. And that, and that, of course, 
temporarily saved the, the Kaganate, but it, it alienated um, the vassals, the, the Kievans and, um, and the Magyars, who, well, the Magyars could move. Um, the Kievans sought protection from uh, a different nation, from, from the Vikings. Um, who eventually created the Kievan Rus state and eventually destroyed the Kaganate themselves. So if Kiev is Slavs asking the Rus to save them from Turks and push the Jews to the side, what's happening now, of course, is they've got a Jew buying Turkish drones to protect them from the Rus. RT. I was going to say what I was going for earlier that I lost my train of thought. And I think this kind of ties into what Jonathan, the comparison Jonathan is making to the situation in the 11th century is the messaging I've seen coming out of the Ukrainian side isn't religious. It's saying that Russians are a kind of crypto Mongol and will, if you don't check the, the Mongolian horde that is coming, they're going to flood into Finland next. And then they're going to flood into even wider parts of Europe that need to be protected from this Asiatic sub-race. Um, not an orthodox uh, alien, but an Asian alien. And uh, yes, I, I saw that too. Wasn't that the cover of The Economist the other day? It was some major international paper that um, had photoshopped um, uh, photoshopped uh, Putin into traditional Mongolian garb and darkened his skin. Uh, so, uh, yeah, not that's, the economist, <laughs> uh, not the economist. All right. So the economist, the economist hasn't gone mad yet. It's probably the Atlantic. <laughs> that makes sense. I think you're right. The Atlantic went mad years ago. Or Der Spiegel. Or Der Spiegel. There we go. So, yeah, I think this uh, this I think is is very productive here. Because, of course, if religion isn't the filter, if Huntington just got lucky and predicted the conflict without actually understanding the substance of it, there are lots of, con uh, lots of narratives about the meaning in terms of ethnopolitics of this conflict. There is the fact that... Uh, uh, Nazis are part of the coalition in Ukraine that's in charge. Um, there's the fact that, um, that how significant a part of that coalition they are, I think is the more reasonable debate rather than a binary question, but not going there, looking instead at the roots of all this. Um, one of the things that I've noticed is that there's, uh, that whereas there's a Ukrainian discourse uh, that maximizes the alienness of the Russians um, and helps, I think, to narrate the loss of Crimea in those terms, given that that was a Muslim polity that Russia acquired uh, that Ukraine briefly held. But of course, the Muslims were cleaned out of it. Um, but there is then this question of the ethnopolitics, not just from the Ukrainian side, but from the Russian side. And what I've seen is that there tends to be a strong emphasis on the idea that um, Russians and Ukrainians are one people, that because both trace their political, cultural, and national origins to the early medieval Kiev state, that um, this is a project of reunification. And so I'm interested in people's thoughts about um, these, these opposing discourses of nationality and how nationality is playing out between the two official positions. Well, if I may start, <clears throat> when I was growing up, um, we never discussed Russia in our family. Uh, it was always a Ukrainian uh, take. Um, our family sat around back in the mid seventies and had a discussion about, um, you know, the racism of Canada towards Ukrainians and how we dealt with it. Um, you know, is it okay to call us bohunks? Is it okay to, uh, to do that? And well, what we decided then is, is that we'll just get on with it 
and uh, and and uh, and just go. We, out of that came, you know, Ukrainian Tire and and Molson Ukrainian and all that sort of stuff. Uh, so when we're talking about the diaspora of you of of Ukrainians, even those who have been here, me third being third generation, we talk about it as Ukraine. We don't mention Russia. Um, so. In terms of the alienness of the uh, of the Russian um, uh, uh, people uh, to the Ukraine, yeah, I can see that, but not on the ground there. Um, that's on the ground here in Canada or the United States. On the ground there, Russia is everywhere. Um, you know the. Uh, most of the uh, uh, of the people in the eastern part speak Russian as their first language, not their second language, as their first language. I wouldn't say most. I'd say a good, uh, um, uh, a major minority of the of the people there. And um, you know, the older generations have a long-standing under, understanding of what Russia is and what it means. So their alienness of Russia on the ground there. Is um, uh, is the Ukrainian people know what Russia is all about, and um, but more importantly, they know what Russia today is all about, and they don't want any part of it anymore. Um, a good a good portion of them have just no desire to be ba- uh, to be under that um, uh, under that system anymore. So that's where I come from now. Uh, all right, RT. Yeah, so I'm going to say that what Stuart said earlier about Russians generally considering Ukrainians to be one people with Russians, my experience, that's true. I've never heard really a different attitude expressed by Russians. I know it's the official Putin line that we are brother peoples, but um, like to wit, when I was a missionary in Russia, I didn't want people to know I was an American because it was a distraction and it they would fetishize me as an American and make the conversation about that. And I didn't want it to be about that. So I intentionally passed myself off to people as a Ukrainian by speaking with a Southern accent, softening my G's, just speaking a little bit badly. And nobody ever asked where I was from because they just figured, ah, he's just from the South. And it would, it enabled me to focus on what I wanted to talk about. Um, I wasn't treated I was in a lot of cases treated a lot more fairly than an American might have been because of that. I believe um, I was never like treated with any kind of uh, what I would think of as racism. Um, and two more points that I want to mention is that most of the footage that I've seen coming out of the conflict zone, even from say the Kiev salient is in Russian, even if it's in a Russian with the Ukrainian accent, it's not even, people speaking in the Ukrainian language, even in places like Kyiv, which are supposed to be the stronghold of Ukrainian, um, well, maybe not like Lvov, but of Ukrainian nationalism. Um, and I know a number of people who are from Dnepropetrovsk, Donetsk, in the western part of the country, who either left uh, Ukraine for Russia in 2014, when the Ukraine project started to fall apart, or have remained there and since either been conscripted into or joined the Donetsk militia um, to fight against the the Kyiv government and the the National Guard of Ukraine. Um, So I I would say that there there is, um, yeah, a lot of people in Ukraine don't wanna have anything to do with Russia, that's absolutely true, but there's also a lot of people there who do wanna have something to do with Russia. and also, I just I don't think that there is a widespread feeling of um, a, a widespread understanding of Ukrainians as an alien race amongst Russians. Uh, Jonathan, um, my suspicion is that the only Russians who think of Ukrainians as an alien race are the ones who actually live in Ukraine. Um, now, I mean, okay, as a Jew, when we talked about the old country, when we talked about Ukraine in our past, we just called it Russia, as far as we were concerned, it was. Um, You know, it was like, what difference does it make? Like the Jews who lived in Ukraine speak Russian as a first language, uh, if they don't speak Yiddish as a first language, which I guess they don't anymore. 
um, there was sort of a class distinction. My, when my ancestors left, the working class Jews spoke Yiddish and the middle class Jews spoke Russian. And my grandmother spoke Russian fluently all her life. Um, but I think, I suspect attitudes may have hardened over the years. In fact, in the face of Ukrainian um, independence or actually even before independence, just in the face of, of Ukrainian nationalism existing in the Soviet Union. Because I remember some years ago, like 10 years ago, before the conflict blew up um, in Ukraine, I met this woman here who is a, another Ukrainian Jew. And she had left Ukraine at, in, in the Soviet, she had left Soviet Ukraine as a child and moved to Israel. And then as a teenager moved to Canada, she basically dodged the draft in Israel and came here because as she said, she didn't want to fight Arabs, that's not her war. And then I was just talking about towns I might've come from. And I mentioned that maybe I had an ancestor from, uh, from somewhere near Luhansk and I didn't really know. And she stopped me right there and said, Lugansk, Lugansk with a G. Like, it's like, okay. There isn't a war yet, and she doesn't want to fight Arabs. She does want to fight Ukrainians over the, over the G. Like, that suddenly is a thing for her, and it, it surprised me. <laughs> and then this war started, and I was no longer surprised, because if that's how she feels, imagine how the people who actually live there feel. I've, I've seen... I, I, actually, I just wanted to point out with that, um, we have a war between the leaders of which uh, are Vladimir and Volodymyr. <laughs> They're the same name. Oh one no! Is Russian, one yeah. is... Well, both they both Trust me, mean when Volodymyr goes the world. Sorry, they both both of those mean, names mean dominate or control the world. Vlast and Mir together. Yeah, appropriately. Um, I mean, it's, it's worth remembering <laughs> that that you know Vladimir the Great, equal to the Apostles, was the guy who Christianized Ukraine. Ukraine. Rus, yeah. Christianized Kiev. Um, sorry, Christianized the Rus. Well, basically, really what, what happened was, was he adopted the religion of the Rus, uh, of the Ukrainians, and uh, or the Kievans. So we can't and, dismiss the, um, the language just difference uh, in the propaganda war that we're inundated with. Uh, yeah. No, we can't. I mean, it's worth remembering, though, that when Volodymyr goes home to his wife, he's Vladimir. Like, he's Vladimir at home. Right? Um, I mean, what I saw on Facebook at some point was the wokest possible response to the war because it was, it was a meme saying, learn to pronounce Kiev properly because it is super problematic to be using the word Kiev when you're trying to fight Russian oppression. Right. <laughs> that, that is... Um, Same word. That captures our <laughs> moment very well. Yeah. Uh, yes, well, I mean, uh, you know, uh, some... Uh, yeah, different different transliterations of the same word get movements into all kinds of trouble. Like the LDS Church is still trying to walk off the Elias Elijah problem. So there is um, there's uh, we we're all guilty of that, especially in a in a, on a continent like this where um, you know RT is so exceptional. Like we're we are not second language people, and we don't have a second language psychology. We don't often know how to code switch in um, in the mainstream of Anglo-American culture. And I think that that helped that that places additional barriers um, for us in thinking about a um, ironically, yes, Canadians can't think about bilingual countries. What's the proof of that? Us thinking about ourselves. Complete failure. Uh, so because um, we're not an actual bilingual country, we're a unilingual country that captured another country and won't let it leave for fear of what'll happen to us. So um, anyway, uh, cosmopolitanism and legitimacy. I wanted to go a little further into this ethnic thing because one of the things that switches in the 19th century in Russia, it's one of the last great empires to adapt Napoleonic ideas of nationalism and re-theorize who should live there. So in the Middle Ages and the early modern period, um, the greatness of an emperor uh, inhered in the number of different kinds of peoples he ruled. 
the fact that you were the emperor of the Russians and the Khan of the Tatars meant that you were twice as good. It meant that your polity was twice as good because it was quite twice as diverse. And nationalism comes along in the 19th century and suddenly Napoleon is able to do this bizarre thing that by making a place less diverse, and we have to remember that England, France, Japan, the first three really modern ethno-nationalist states to come into being poured resources in the 17th and 18th century into destroying minority language groups within their societies before they even directed that energy outwards. And the Russians were latecomers to this. Until uh, the mid 19th century, the numbers of different kinds of peoples you ruled in Russia, you were like the Austro-Hungarian emperor. It just meant that your empire was greater because it was more cosmopolitan and you had authority over more kinds of people. Now, of course, because the Russians are late to the party, they get into a bit of a hurry. The government composes protocols of the elders of Zion, for instance, as part of this desire to catch up to the levels of partition and minority suppression happening in the rest of Europe where this process has been going on for longer. But now we're in the present, right? And one of the things that has happened in the new geopolitics, especially post-Trump, is that people who, are, who back the Trump side of the global system tend to argue um, in favor of ethno-nationalist states, whereas progressive liberals who oppose the Trump movement are increasingly obsessed, especially at the elite level, at demonstrating the diversity of the peoples they rule, uh, that that's key in the rhetoric of both sides. But that's just the big picture. How is that shaking down in Ukraine right now? How are questions of cosmopolitanism fitting into um, these questions of national identity, defenses of nation and national conflict? NRT, go first. So the first uh, hero of the Russian Federation medals that were given to soldiers in this conflict were given to Dagestani soldiers. Um, and when Putin did the ceremony, some guy like threw himself on a grenade and that saved his unit or whatever. And um, when Putin was giving the medal to this guy's family, he went after him and he said, I'm a Chechen, I'm Ingush, I'm Jewish, I'm Mordvin, I'm Russian, and I'm proud to be part of this great multinational federation that we have called the Russian Federation. Um, I, that's obviously his point of view and he's in charge, so we got to take it seriously. But I think that attitude of Russia as a big country geographically and a big country ethnically is important to Russian nationalists of all stripes, even ones white power type ones that want Russians to rule over and subjugate Central Asians want Central Asians to be part of Russia because they think the more people you have in your empire, the greater it is. So they have their own authoritarian version of what we see in America, a place for everyone and everyone in their place. Jonathan, go ahead. Well, you saw, that if you were watching carefully, you saw this in 2014. There was a ceremony held at the Kremlin welcoming representatives of the Crimea to a gathering of representatives of the other Russian lands. And Putin was there in a room with dozens of other people all of whom were in florid national costume to greet the Crimean delegation. I mean, there was some Jewish with a Strymel and Paeus sitting there representing Birobijan. It was bizarre, but it was very much the court of the Persian king and look at all the nations. Back to our team before I go to Tom. Yes, yeah, Sergei Shoigu, the top general or minister of defense or whatever is himself a Tuvan. Um, it's a multi-ethnic set of generals that are prosecuting this intervention. Tom? We should um, also understand that 
uh, Putin does not have very many friends outside of the Federation on this venture. Um, and, and to prop up uh, uh, his multi-ethnic um, uh, consensus uh, on this, uh, I think the federations um, are being more um, upfront. Uh, federation leaderships uh, are being more upfront about it. You have a, a lot of Chechens in the in the first weeks of this battle being uh, um, uh, being promoted because of the death of the various generals going on now, and um, that's just one. We're we should. We should be expecting uh, recruits, uh, uh, battalions, and soldiers and generals to be uh, be promoted uh, quickly after this because um, uh, they'll be those tanks are their tanks are on trains right now heading to heading uh, westward. Uh, so um, um, you know we the United Nations is not lined up with people standing behind. Um, uh, Vladimir Putin on 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 this intervention. So I think it's it's safe to say that uh, the people standing behind him are within the Federation already. So uh, let's just uh, continue on this a little bit um, before we move to some questions about our own white settler states. Um, so everybody immediately had like data and opinion about uh, Russian cosmopolitanism. Is there an opposing Ukrainian discourse of cosmopolitanism? Is there a theory of the ethnic composition of Ukraine that we can detect in the current discourse coming out of the Ukrainian state? And obviously I'd start with, um, uh, with Jonathan there uh, because of the observations you made earlier about the choice of Zelensky and the way in which that functions to present the Ukrainian state. Yeah, well, the thing is that the Ukrainian argument for nationality and their argument for why the West should help them in this war is simply is straightforwardly that they identify as a Western European, well, a Central European country, naturally part of NATO, naturally part of the European Union, essentially on ethnic grounds. Um, I, I saw someone saying the other day, we're a Central European country like Poland. And I'm thinking Poland is not a Central European country, but they think of Eastern Europe as basically Russia as a different thing. And one of the first interventions I saw from one of my Ukrainian friends online was some historical screed trying to answer Putin's claim that you know, Russia and Ukraine are, are the same country by saying, well, first off, really Ukraine was the older country. And anyways, Russians aren't even really Slavs. They're just Finns who converted to orthodoxy. If you look at the genes, they're no closer to Ukrainians than the Tatars. <laughs> Uh, uh, any other observations on the Ukrainian side of cosmopolitan I'll, and ethno-presentation? I will uh, suggest that uh, over the last number of years, um, Ukraine has brought in a, a, a fair amount of, of refugees from various other conflicts. Um, you know, I've been watching BBC, BBC and CBC, for example, are very good at telling individual stories. Um, and that sort of, with the hopes of, uh, uh, of humanizing the conflict. And uh, uh, one, of the, one of the things that they always try to go for is the non-white uh, uh, Ukrainian, you know, making their way to, uh, uh, making their way to the border. So, you know, I've seen Syrians, I've seen Chechens, I've seen um, uh, uh, North Africans, I've seen, um, you know, so what I'm, what I'm picking up from the, uh, you know, from the, I wouldn't say propaganda necessarily, because not all these out outfits are propaganda per se, but uh, from the information that we're getting is that, is that, Ukraine is now more than just uh, uh, Ukraine white um, uh, uh, Ukrainians and and uh, you know the the Jewish uh, uh, community that that survives there. It's not just that. Um, it is like some other of the parts of Europe, uh, which has um, allowed 
uh, refugees come in at, at, at limited numbers. Um, you know, the Eastern European bloc as a whole has, is not overly receptive to, to these, uh, 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 to the refugees, to these flights of migration uh, because of conflict. Uh, but right now, uh, I believe Ukraine is trying to, um, uh, to say, hey, we're not just a bunch of white Orthodox Christians here. Uh, RT, anything to add? Um, I mean, I would say that I've seen lots of footage of, uh, of those non-white Ukrainians not being allowed to leave the country or I've seen uh, that too, refugees. yeah. Um, but I mean, look how screwed the UK is since Brexit and they've been cut off from their source of cheap foreign labor um, through the Schengen zone. Um, I, to me, like, of course, Ukraine wants to have cheap foreign labor coming into their country that they can pay less. Um, that may make them cosmopolitan, but I don't think it necessarily makes their statehood um, a non-ethnic statehood. Um, even ethno states want to have guest laborers that they can grind into powder. So I'm uh, going to switch optics for a little bit. Uh, mystery I've been trying to solve, and I'm hoping you guys can wildly speculate with me about this. We've got some polling in in Canada um, looking at uh, levels of support for the different sides in the conflict uh, sorted by province. And um, if you line those up with um, the, and Canada's efforts to attract Russians and Ukrainians, we were far more successful at attracting Ukrainians than Russians in the, during the immigration boom. Um, and uh, a disproportionate number of the Ukrainians we attracted were German settlers in Ukraine. And then the, and uh, so, you know, Mennonites, et cetera. And then there were, you know, Orthodox Ukrainians, Catholic Ukrainians, et cetera. Uh, and what, and the polls, I mean, all of the polls, of course, show that, um, you know, people are anti, are mostly anti-Putin and mostly pro um, uh, Zelensky. But what's in, what was interesting to me is that the proportion of Ukrainians in the province varied inversely with support for Ukraine. So Putin um, is, the, so the Russian side is most popular in Manitoba, second most popular in, um, in Saskatchewan, and at the other end of the scale are places like Prince Edward Island and Quebec, uh, where there are basically negligible numbers of, um, of uh, Ukrainians, uh, or at least people who see their, their her Ukrainian heritage as Ukrainian uh, and fill it out on the census. Um, we have tiny numbers there, and that's where support for Ukraine is highest and support for Russia is lowest. I had totally not expected that. I love polls because uh, I read polls compulsively because they, they upset my predictions all the time. And uh, this is definitely the latest set. So I'm interested in um, theories, uh, first of all, as to um, why that is. And second, as to whether that pattern is likely to hold in the rest of the Ukrainian diaspora outside of Canada. I, uh, Tom, go ahead. I don't think I, I would, it's no wonder that the Quebec is, uh, you know, more or less supportive of what's going on in Ukraine, given the uh, traditional fight for sovereignty that uh, Quebec has. So that makes absolutely perfect sense in terms of uh, now we're talking a noticeable difference between um, uh, the popularity of the, um, the Russian position uh, as opposed to the Ukrainian position. I, I, I think uh, if you frame it correctly, the Ukrainian position uh, holds the most sway in all those provinces. It's just the level of support for the Russian position. Um, now, in terms of 
I would have thought that uh, Alberta and, and, and Saskatchewan would have had a higher support of that because of the influx of the American um, uh, uh, type of conservatism, uh, which uh, essentially encompasses a, uh, a Russian view of, um, well, accepts the Russian view because of uh, um, um, because of the influence of Trump, especially. Um, I'm a bit surprised about uh, Manitoba. Uh, I have no explanation for that. Maybe it's, uh, um, uh, you know, has more to do with the time of day than anything else. If you took that poll today, would it be the same? I would think not. On uh, how the diaspora is thinking, RT. Yeah, I mean, how is the diaspora thinking anybody's guess? I can't really explain that poll result either. My best guess would be that people in the diaspora, Ukrainians, um, are more likely to have been paying attention to the conflict over the last eight years in the first place. And um, I think a lot of people that are weighing in and have to have an opinion right now don't know that there's been a civil war in Ukraine for eight years and that 10 to 15,000 people have died in that war. Um, I think people with relatives over there or who may have living memory of being there are a lot more likely to think, man, I wish this civil war would be over. Um, and whether this intervention actually achieves that or not, at least a stated goal is a stabilization of that situation. Um, again, my understanding is that it is still not anywhere uh, more pop, the intervention is not more popular than the Ukrainian side anywhere in Canada. But um, yeah, uh, I would just say that it's more likely that if you're Ukrainian, you see this possibly as an end to the civil war that you have hated watching for the last eight years. Yeah, and certainly that, that does help to explain uh, because some of it is not just, uh, it's not just demographics on Ukrainian descent. Um, if one is looking to explain the city of Winnipeg, uh, which is a very left-wing leaning city, um, it's in the running for being the most left-leaning city, major city in Canada. Um, uh, maybe, depending upon what you think left means, Montreal might beat it, maybe. But when, and so certain, but one of the things you see in Winnipeg is, um, um, that this is the center of Ukrainian diasporic institutions, of community organizations, public buildings, halls, associations, things like that. Um, it's pretty clearly the capital of the Ukrainian diaspora within Canada. And uh, uh, it certainly would address Thompson's a mystery that this is an engagement measure that we're measuring high information, high engagement, because certainly, however different the Winnipeggers might be from the People's Party voters in the Red River just to the south, um, they, uh, they would absolutely share with their uh, more conservative Ukrainian neighbors uh, high levels of awareness and engagement on diasporic issues. Uh, Jonathan. Okay, well, the interesting thing is that, okay, I've got a number of Ukrainian friends. I've got a number of Ukrainian Jewish friends and relatives. Um, in general, the Jews talk more than the Christians. Maybe that's just because we were talkative people. Um, every, the one Ukrainian Catholic I know has been weirdly quiet. He's pretty left-wing and he said almost nothing in this. Um, the most vociferously pro-Ukrainian person I know is a Jew who was born in Odessa and immigrated to Canada and then the U.S. So he's the most cosmopolitan Ukrainian Jew I know. And he's been ferociously anti-Putin for years, even like the Ukrainian conflict isn't what brought him into this. He was cared about what was going on in Belarus. He cares what's going on in Russia. He talks about people and, and he works there. Like he, he actually travels there for work sometimes. So these, the most cosmopolitan Jews are simply doing the thing that middle-class Russians have always done, which is 
start the overthrow of the Russian government, because that overthrowing the Russian government is what Russian patriotism consists of for anyone who like has time to think. That's <laughs> always been true, right? I mean, you can love Russia, but you hate the government. You always hate the government. I mean, you know, that, that's just a fact. Um, so the engagement in the Jewish community seems to me like the more engaged and cosmopolitan you are, the more pro-Ukrainian you've become. Um, it's just... my own disengagement that lets me sort of sit back and say, well, but there's grand strategy. There's all these things. There's reality in a way that I find very hard to explain to people who have relatives there or who have an engagement with the politics. Uh, just a follow up to you, Jonathan. So uh, today in the news, um, uh, there's a blow up between uh, Naftali Bennett and uh, Zelensky that um, um, that a bunch of diplomatic stuff has leaked out. They're trading, I think, pretty choice insults. I have to say, whatever we may think of these guys and their willingness to collaborate with people we couldn't bear collaborating with, this is like an articulate set of insults that are flying here. Um, and uh, so, um, uh, so, uh, so the argument that Zelensky is making is that um, uh, Bennett's offer of mediation was uh, false, that there was no actual attempt to mediate. He was just preparing the ground to um, tell Zelensky to surrender. That's the Ukrainian narrative. And, uh, and of course, uh, you know, Bennett and his crew have... Uh, have their own uh, narrative for what the government of Israel has been up to and how it's responsible. Um, any uh, any reaction to this uh, this strange little uh, little corner of the conflict from any of you folks, Jonathan? Well, I mean, to some extent, this is how everyone feels when a mediator tells them what they don't want to hear, right? A mediator's job is to tell everybody to surrender. <laughs> to some part of the other person's agenda. Um, the advice that Bennett is giving is something that I have been thinking is probably the right thing, though I haven't had the nerve to say it out loud where my Ukrainian friends can hear me because it's awful. Uh, but I've been arguing for compromise with Putin from before when the war started and, and no one would listen to me because the more engaged people were basically, when confronted with the idea of a war, simply said, we've got to keep pressure on the autocrats. We need Putin out of power and losing the war will help push him out of power. And that might be a laudable goal, but I couldn't bring myself to say, but let us burn Ukraine to get it. Um, it's even harder now. Obviously, the Ukrainians don't want to give up ground that they're fighting for and haven't even lost yet, which is what Putin is demanding. Um, Bennett is, pro the thing is Bennett has a pretty realistic idea probably of what this can turn into, right? I mean, he knows what an occupation and an insurgency policed by airstrikes looks like and he would not wish it on anybody for anything. Uh, RT. Yeah, I was gonna say that like I used to be of the point of view that Zelensky should surrender and save a lot of lives and, and capital destruction. Um, I still kind of think that, but I think any analysis of what Zelensky is saying or doing at this point, you got to understand he's not in control of the army anymore. There's no civil control of the military in Ukraine. He couldn't surrender even if he wanted to. If he did, he would be taken out and shot. Um, they've already executed their chief negotiator for treason. They've been beating up people from parliament who have in the past advocated for um, negotiating with Russia, not even saying anything about surrender now, just for potentially doing it. Um, so like, I don't know what I would do if I was in his seat. Um, I would, I, being me, I would try to go to the negotiating table. I would want to prevent any further conflict, but at the same time, he's a dead man. Um, as soon as he surrenders. Um, he's a dead man as soon as he doesn't surrender. He's, he's in an impossible position um, and I don't envy it. Tom. I think Bennett is reading uh, the wall um, and, and he sees that uh, Russia put in 
a modest force at best in order to take uh, uh, to take Ukraine to and um, take the the cities, change the government, and uh, do what he needed, what he felt needed to do. Uh, and because that didn't go well, the Russian might the size of the Russian uh, military is just starting to pile up on the borders and will be seeping into Ukraine at a greater and greater rate. Uh, the Russian Air Force is becoming less and less effective. Uh, the, um, you know, I, I think Ben is just reading the, uh, the writing on the wall and saying, you cannot win this. And if you do win this, it's not going to be for a generation. It's going to be a generation of guerrilla warfare, IEDs, and assassinations, and you—that's uh, just going to destroy everything that uh, that Ukraine um, is and wants to be. So I, RT's right. If Zelensky goes and takes that, um, I don't see how how he survives that. So um, uh, this is a binary choice: win or lose. So um, now I've uh, I've asked uh, the questions that uh, I had sort of planned out the things the the things I was curious about. Um, are there things that um, I've failed to ask about things that uh, you guys wanted to bring to this discussion that uh, that haven't been on my radar? Well, there's one thing that I wanted to uh, um, to mention, and I think I'd mentioned it to you in discussions earlier in the week, Stuart, is that. The number one trading partner of Ukraine is China, 48%. And um, we haven't seen the other shoe drop from China yet on this. And um, it's a little weird. They've not made a commitment everywhere, but um, their reporters are embedded with the, with the Russian forces, um, which is a good thing I see because um, nobody else is. Uh, so... Um, uh, I, you know, and you also had mentioned at some point about Serbia and how that's going to affect things. And I, uh, I don't see that as coming. I don't see that as being uh, anything that's going to happen in the next two weeks, but in the next two months uh, with Bosnia Herzegovina about to uh, erupt again. Um, I think that's something that's that can flare up too. So those are the two things that I wanted to to bring to this discussion and maybe get a little input from uh, from our other uh, other guests. All right, um, um, which you would care to go first on Tom's stuff, your new stuff, uh, Jonathan? Um, I, I don't feel like we've missed any vital concerns of mine. Um, I hadn't thought about the Serbian position in this either. They're not be their natural allies of Russia. They always have been very traditionally, uh, but I think they've been had some westernizing governments. So um, anything can happen. I, I, I really haven't got anything to add on that point. Um, yeah, I think the um, certainly the the China uh, element is really fascinating. It's been really interesting watching the hunger for Xi Jinping to take clear positions on the conflict and all the tea leaf reading around China. Um, when uh, I was uh, working with my friend Philip on writing a dystopian uh, tabletop role playing game set at this time twenty years ago. Uh, one of the things that we'd been very focused on was the um, was the uh, the first of the Russia China agreements um, of sort of uh, the re the post Cold War reconvergence of the two states, and um, the first agreement I recall was the agreement to share intel to limit Islamic extremism in Central Asia, uh, and um, of course. China's efforts to, in their minds, limit Muslim extremism in Central Asia are perhaps one of the worst things happening in the world and certainly one of the least popular. Uh, but um, uh, I think there's this question of 
uh, Russia and China being situational allies, but the breadth and depth of that alliance being so hard to discern and potentially so volatile over a relatively stable, slow accretion of additional diplomatic and economic ties. And Tom brings up the interesting question of, yes, um, economically decimating Ukraine the longer the war goes on is certainly not in China's immediate interest, even if it might be in their longer term interest. And I'm sure there are push-pull questions around that within the different interests on the Central Committee. Uh, RT, your observations. Yeah, on those points on China, I mean, whatever happens here, I think it's the end of uh, the single global US market uh, empire. Um, I mean, just today, they banned shipment of dollars and dollar denominated currencies, which would include, I guess, a ton of other currencies um, to Russia. Like, they're fracturing the entire global economy that capitalism is supposed to have this genius invention that capitalism is supposed to have given us um, in order to punish Putin for this. Uh, that you can't like undo that. Um, you can only sanction so many countries before you have you split the economy into two economies, one half of which you don't control. Um, we are going back into multipolarity, whether we want it or not. Um, I do think that Russia and China are going to continue to be situational allies probably for the next 50 years. I mean, I'm pulling that number out of my butt. I'm not any, I have no ability to predict that, but um, like what other option is there? There has to be another global economy and they're going to be the occupants of it. Um, if, if American and uh, American client foreign policies continue in the same direction that they're going. Yeah, I think this is probably a good way to wrap up. One of the things that I found most inspiring and interesting in this disaster as we teeter on the brink of different forms of nuclear disaster that could come out of this with vast ecological implications. The thing that um, the thing I've been noticing is, much to my delight, everyone is tearing up investor rights laws. Um, all the attacks, uh, the personal attacks on the Russian oligarchs are music to my ears because investor rights were impregnable. They were subject of a total social consensus across the entire spectrum. No one disagreed with investor rights deals or investor rights parts of global trade deals. Um, right, every, every political party in Canada agrees with the investor rights provisions of NAFTA, um, right? and. You know, of course, in Britain, a lot of the reason that Jeremy Corbyn lost his red wall was that um, people in industrial towns in England were finally able to vote against investor rights during Brexit, even if they had to vote for a lot of other crap to get rid of those rights of global financial portability. If we start losing labor mobility, we start losing investor rights, it might be that this war will turn back the clock on globalization in ways that the 1990s anti-globalization movement uh, were totally ineffectual at doing. And so I think from a socialist perspective, it's gonna be really important to carry those opportunities and do something with them before they disappear. That uh, if there's one thing we can do from this war to improve our own societies, it's going to be to reinforce this erosion of investor rights that's taking place right now. So um, I wanna thank everybody for doing this thing. Um, we've now done a small thing about Ukraine. Thank you all very, very much. Thank you, Stuart, RT, You're welcome. Jonathan. Okay.